Good morning and welcome to Byline Mendocino. I'm your host, Alicia Bales. Byline Mendocino takes a deeper look at local news headlines, talking with local journalists and newsmakers. Today on Byline Mendocino, in light of the disaster in Texas, where extreme weather knocked out the power grid for the whole state, I'll talk with Neil Reardon of Sonoma Clean Power about how California's electricity grid compares. But first, I am so happy to have with me in the studio KZYX News' own Sarah Reith to talk about local stories she's reporting on this week. Morning, Sarah. Good morning, Alicia. It's great to see you in in person. No Zoom. <laughs> yeah, with our masks and our plexiglass That's and all right. of our Swiss cheese. And all of our hand sanitizer and wipes and everything. We're very safe. Um, there's a lot going on throughout the county with kids returning to school, vaccination clinics, really getting shots into people's arms this week. Um, but you were also able to to cover some non-pandemic stories. So why don't you tell us what stories you're looking at this week? Well, I think the biggest one has to do with Measure B. Um, we uh, played earlier this week some um, excerpts from the CEO's report at the Board of Supervisors meeting um, where we heard CEO Carmel Angelo telling the board that she would really like the board to give the Measure B committee some direction. It's not coherent. She said it doesn't have a common mission. And that seems like it really struck a chord because the very next day, um, uh, Commissioner Shannon Riley, who's also the deputy city manager for the city of Ukiah, brought forward an agenda item. And to be to be clear, that agenda item was on the agenda well before Angela made her remarks. But um, Shannon Riley said, you know, what we really need is a strategic plan. And this was the first meeting that they've had since the program manager position was eliminated. And that was um, a position that was held by Allison Bailey, who also kind of got blasted at her last presentation at the Board of Supervisors meeting. And she had brought a strategic plan before the Measure B Commission back in October. And Shannon Riley said that uh, the most critical thing about that plan was that it lacked a plan. Um, it was some pretty searing criticism. and Right, not mincing words. No, not really. And so this week, she really made her case that this commission needs a strategic plan, which was kind of at the very top of Supervisor Ted Williams' wish list. And he and Supervisor John Haschek are on an ad hoc that's trying to trying to to bring it together with Measure B now that now that it looks like they've got the contract with Nocton Lewis and the um, CRT has broken ground in Ukiah, and these buildings are really going to become a reality at some point in the foreseeable future. So. So, okay, so I can tell that you are somebody who follows the Board of Supervisors closely. Thank goodness for the rest of us. Uh, but for people who maybe are new or who haven't been tracking Measure B since the beginning, what is it? And, and how did it end up in this place where they're calling years later for a strategic plan? Well, it is a sales tax measure um, that was passed in 2017. And... Um, this tax money is supposed to fund mental health treatment and buildings. And after five years, we're about three and a half years in, the tax will, will go down. And so there's about $27 million in the account right now. And it, um, Commissioner Tom Allman said that it's bringing in about $15,000 in interest a month. So there's, there's a chunk of money. And a contractor, Nocton Lewis, has been hired to design these buildings, these um, uh, crisis stabilization unit and a crisis residential treatment unit. 
and the CRT is going to be in Ukiah. And right next to the post office on Orchard Avenue, it's broken ground. They think that it's going to be open and operational by the end of the year. So that's a, a huge step. And um, it seems to be quite far in then uh, for for these concerns about strategic planning. Well, the very first thing that this committee did was commission a $30,000 report from Kemper, who's the one who blew the lid off of Ortner Management Group a few years ago. So he laid out this huge plan. There's a Kemper ad hoc committee on the Measure B committee to try to parse it and figure out what's going on, but they still haven't come up with a long-term strategic plan. And there, there was some criticism from a, a member of the public, Sherry Ebium, who works closely with Supervisor Haschak and just really parses the financial reports. And every month she's got some really minute and to-the-point criticisms of how these reports are just kind of sloppy, basically. And um, she said, well, you know, the, the Kemper report has a lot of strategy in it, but... Apparently, it needs to be parsed a little bit more. There, there really needs to be more to the point exactly how are we going to implement the Kemper report. So a lot of documentation, a lot of parsing of parsings of parsings to the, the most minute level. And um, when Shannon Riley was making her pitch, she said, you know, we need to be spending our time overseeing the implementation of this plan and overseeing the independent financial audits, which have not happened yet, and they're supposed to be annual. Um, she said, you know, we, we don't need to be spending all of our time debating lighting and landscaping contracts. And last month, it, they spent kind of an inordinate amount of time discussing the merits of LED versus incandescent lighting at the Behavioral wow. Health Training Center in Redwood Valley. People were saying they couldn't possibly make a decision if they didn't know how many hours the lights were going to be on, which doesn't really pertain to mental health, except that it may affect the mental health of people trying to sit through a meeting like that. <laughs> that that's, it's amazing that there are people who, uh, out of their own pocket and their own dime, sit through these meetings and, and, like you said, parse the details and try to keep the process both accountable and moving forward. It's just it's it's amazing and it and democracy wouldn't function without people like that yeah yeah so so we'll see if they come up with a plan um riley said she wants it to be short and sweet she and the chair of the committee donna muschetti and possibly tom allman um are going to work with the supervisors williams and Haschek to to come up with this plan and she says you know i want it to be short and sweet we don't want to drag it out let's make it happen Right. And you're reporting on the Measure B committee. That was Thursday's KZYX news story, right? Yes. So people can go to KZYX.org and listen to that report. Just click on Thursday's news. Right. And we're also podcasting now. That's right. Yeah. So you can subscribe to, I think it's called KZYX News Podcast. Right. And if our listeners are not completely sick of Measure B yet, there's uh, another little piece of news. Um, uh Carmel Angelo told the supervisors that she submitted an MOU, a Memorandum of Understanding, to the Frank R. Howard Foundation to ask them to hold off on selling the old Howard Hospital for 90 days. And apparently that MOU has gone back to the county from the foundation with a few minor changes. It has not returned to the foundation yet, still in the kind of back and forth, not quite making up our minds stage. But if the county buys it, there's a possibility 
that it could be used as a puff. And that was not, that's a psychiatric health facility. And that was not a guarantee that came up at last month's Measure B committee meeting and just got blasted. People were mm-hmm. like, how, how is this just appearing on the agenda all of a sudden when it's such a huge issue for the people in Willits? The city of Willits passed an ordinance that was basically a Public Records Act request. It said, you know, the land is not zoned for that. We want to be in the loop. The county needs to let us know you know, a couple of pages of details about how this process is going forward. And they didn't completely ax it. They said, we really want to know what you're planning to do with this building, especially if it's going to be used for this huge purpose. So on March 7th, which is a Sunday, there will be a meeting at 4 o'clock about that. And the um, city of Willits will have an ad hoc committee. Um, Supervisors Williams and Hazchak will be there. I believe a representative from the Frank R. Howard Foundation will be there. Um, there was some talk. I think Dr. Miller said she was going to talk to the Rotary Club of Willits this week. So they're, they're starting to, to talk about the possibility and nobody's totally committing, but they're still thinking about it and, and moving towards it, hopefully a little bit more methodically and, and inclusively. So we'll see how that shakes out. Right, because the old Howard Hospital in Willits, they're right on Main Street on, on the old 101. It's just an empty facility right now. Yeah, and it might need a seismic retrograde. I think two years ago, the estimate for the remodel on it was something like $15 million. Mm-hmm. And now um, Mark Myrtle, who's on the, the Measure B Commission, said those estimates are out of date. It's probably more. Mm-hmm. So if it were to be used for that purpose, and again, nobody's committing to it, it would be a huge undertaking. It would be expensive. Um the community would want to know what's going on. All right, so a lot of news in Measure B. If you can, if you can follow it, yeah. <laughs> there's a lot going on there. If we can wade through the acronyms, right? And maybe now we won't have to listen to so much about LED lighting, and it'll be a little easier to sit through the meetings. All right, what else have you been looking at this week? Well, another and more non-pandemic news: the Great Redwood Trail is still kind of plugging ahead looks sort of promising um mike mcguire held a town hall with some trail building experts including a woman who's been really involved in rails to trails across the country and apparently there's ten thousand miles of old abandoned railroads that have been converted into trails where people can hike or bike maybe even ride horses Um, Yeah, I watched that town hall with Mike McGuire. And one of the things that really stuck with me was that this, so they're talking about turning the North Coast Railroad, uh, actual railroad corridor with the, you know, the old, the old ties still in the ground there, um, into the longest trail on the West Coast. It's like 360 miles or something, some incredibly long trail that would go from the Bay Area all the way up to Humboldt Bay, uh, turning that rail- old railroad into a hiking and biking trail. Yeah, and it's it's really complicated. There's, there's not that much of it that's been built already. There are little segments. There's one in Ukiah. Right. Um, Our little rail trail in Ukiah is part of this much larger, ambitious project. Yeah, and it still needs another, here we have more strategic planning that needs to be done. There, there's got to be a, a big oversight plan that first needs to be funded, and that plan will reveal how much it will cost to build this thing and exactly what it'll take. Um, we don't know all the details. We know that for the Class A bike trails. Like that are pavement with 
with dot dashed lines and everything really kind of commuter bike trails yeah that you would have in the towns and the cities where you know you you'd feel safe riding along there with your kids and and just going to work on the trails those could be a couple million dollars per mile to make those but they had some volunteers up in Humboldt hack a trail out of the you know out of, alongside the the railroad and that was about fifteen thousand dollars a mile so mcguire city not all segments are completely equal and that's going to be especially true for the eel river canyon which is going to be the hardest part because there's old rusted out box cars and abandoned equipment maybe fuel cans a whole lot of old kind of gross fuel and chemicals along that trail. That's one of the interests that I know some of the environmentalists up north have in this project is that it could be a way to get this uh, the Eel River Canyon cleaned up after the environmental disaster that was the North Coast Railroad. Uh, there's a lot of old kind of garbage left along that, that corridor. Yeah, and, and there are little bridges and tunnels. And oh, yeah, tons that, of tunnels. Yeah, so they don't know yet if they're going to keep those there and have them part of the trail or if they're going to have to remove them. If they keep them there, they have to be inspected. If they remove them, it costs a lot of money. And how do you bring heavy equipment into the Eel River Canyon now that the railroad's not usable anymore? Right. So. Yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of this amazing and totally terrifying project it's so ambitious but they have secured a lot they've they've gone through some of the first hurdles right yeah so the ncra is only responsible for the northern portion of it and smart the um sonoma marin area rail transit authority is responsible for the southern portion so the ncra is is in our county and they were bankrupt. They had a huge amount of difficulties and debt and problems. And they're now being transitioned over into this rail authority and a trail authority. Um, and that'll be even more definitive if um, SB 69 gets written into law. And that's what McGuire's team is working on right now. But NCRA is already moving ahead with this, with their trail authority and on thursday they put in an application to the federal government to rail bank which means leaving the railroad in and building the trail on top of it so the rail the trail bed's already there so they're going to rail rail bank the section from willits to samoa in humboldt county and they're going to put in an application for another section sometime in the near future i guess rail banking means that the rail bed is preserved in just in case they ever want to turn it back into a, a railway? Well, I think also it it maybe keeps erosion from happening if the trail is just in this little box. And it, it just makes it easier to just dump the dirt in there uh -huh. or the whatever material they're going to use. And not all the sections are going to be built on top of the railroad. Obviously, New Kaya, it's alongside the railroad. Right. So. Right. All right. Well, um, we're just coming to the end of the segment. We're going to go on to our interview with Neil Reardon from Sonoma County, uh, Sonoma County Green Power. Uh, but what is what are you looking at for next week? What's coming up? 
oh, I'm sure something will happen. <laughs> um, probably vaccinations. I think you're going to talk about that with Darcy Antle this afternoon. Yes, right. Um, Program note today at 3 on the local coronavirus update. Uh, I'll be talking with Becky Emery and Darcy Antle. Darcy Antle is Mendocino County's vaccine coordinator. So sounds like they had a, a huge week for vaccines, both the county and Adventist. Uh, hopefully we'll be getting a, a report from Adventist after our coronavirus update this afternoon so yeah the mobile teams are going to be moving in to the smaller towns so people won't have to spend half the day driving if they want to get vaccinated so that'll be great yeah that'll help a lot for getting to people who uh, maybe don't have as many uh, resources to travel around and hop in their cars for for a shot and then another shot a few weeks later so that's that's great yeah. All right. Well, Sarah Reif, KZYX News, thanks so much for getting us up to date and t- telling us a little bit more about the stories that you're following. Really appreciate it. All right. Thank you. All right. Stay tuned. Uh, when we come back, I'll be talking with Neil Reardon of Sonoma Clean Power uh, about how California's grid compares to Texas's power grid and whether or not we're vulnerable to the similar kind of disaster that just happened there. Stay tuned. Okay, so Neil Reardon, you are with Sonoma Clean Power. Can you start by just describing your job and your role at Sonoma Clean Power? Sure. I'm the Director of Regulatory Affairs, and what that means is I interface with the regulators. Uh, Energy is a heavily, heavily regulated industry. There's many rules. There's many laws around it to ensure that it's there when it's needed, that it's safe, that it's clean. And so because of that, um, there's a lot of interface with different regulatory agencies, commissioners, et cetera. And so that's my role is to communicate what our customers need and to uh, ensure that at Sonoma Clean Power, we can keep investing in clean, reliable energy for our service territory. Does that mean you spend a lot of time in Sacramento? Uh, mostly San Francisco, because we're most significantly regulated by the Public Utilities Commission, which is based in uh, based in San Francisco. So how did Sonoma Clean Power come to be? Are you just a bunch of raving environmentalists who wanted to actually help transition into a clean uh, energy economy or, or what? <laughs> you know, there was definitely an environmental ethos um, beyond the launch. I mean, our mission is to combat the, the crisis of climate change. So that's certainly at our core. Um, our staff is a uh, very experienced and I would say um, practical in their approach because a lot of it comes down to being able to provide a good service and being able to meet our customers' needs and also demonstrate that you can have clean, green, safe energy and you don't need to pay through the roof for it. And how, if, if you could describe for our listeners how this grid works. How does Sonoma Clean Power work in Mendocino County? 
Sure. Great question. And I'll try and break it down. So Sonoma Clean Power is what's called a generation provider. So that means we provide the energy that our customers use. We don't put up our own distribution system. It wouldn't make sense for us to put up, um, you know, another set of poles and wires right next to PG&E's. So the way it works is we use that same distribution system which all of us as residents of Sonoma and Mendocino have paid for and continue to pay for. But the participants in Sonoma Clean Power, so the counties of Mendocino and Sonoma said, you know what, we want to make the choice of what energy we put through those wires. And so we're going to decide if we want to sign contracts with nuclear energy or with gas plants or if we'd rather invest more energy in solar and wind and develop more resources here in our county. So you basically rent the lines. Is that how it works? You pay a fee for the lines and then deliver the power to us? That's right. So everyone as customers, um, a Sonoma Clean Power customer is also a PG&E customer. And so, you know, I get one bill at my house and I read it carefully because I'm in the industry, right? And actually, the majority of what I pay for is the delivery. And so that's for PG&E's distribution system. Um, I've got two electric cars at my house, and my bill for the energy that I use is usually only $30 to $40 a month. The other $80, $100 is for the delivery of that energy. So maintaining the infrastructure that then Sonoma Clean Power uses to, to, to put their energy through, their electricity through. Exactly. And the reason why this works for PG&E is because, for the most part, they do not make profits off the energy. Those are called pass-through costs. So if they sign a contract for $100 million for energy, then that just means all their customers collectively pay back that $100 million. And so their profits aren't impacted by someone else selling the energy. The area where they make their profit is in the wires. Isn't there a capacity issue? I mean, are, are they're not in competition with you for the capacity of the wires? No, they're not. The, it's the same the same wires and the same customers. It's right, really right. That makes sense. Of, of, yeah. What energy is produced and injected into the grid Got on behalf it. of those customers. So they're fine. They don't care if it's their electricity because they're not making really any money off of the electricity. Or if it's your electricity, they're still making the same money. They, they still get a guaranteed rate of return on the wires. And so what that means is when they go to the California Public Utilities Commission and they ask for approval to spend $100 million building more wires, when the PUC says, yes, you have permission to build that, they guarantee that PG&E can earn a 12% profit. So they say, okay, it's $100 million you're going to spend on these wires. We're going to charge everyone $112 million dollars so that your investors get to take home that $12 million profit. And unlike other businesses, it's guaranteed. So the state is saying, we will ensure that you get this 12%. It's so handy for them as a company. You'd think that they would then be good. <laughs> You'd think they would protect that favored status in that relationship. But now, because of so many disasters from deferred maintenance, or correct me if I'm wrong, but this is just like the layperson's observation, they're now in a p position where they can't even get a loan without a, a huge amount of, of interest that they're going to have to pay. They're a bad investment, even with all of this kind of sweetheart relationship they have with the, with the state. 
Yeah, and it's a structural problem because that guaranteed 12% return, that's for the wires that they built. So being good business people, they're going to come up with proposals to put wires everywhere. However, when it comes to maintaining the wires and trimming trees, they don't earn a profit there. And so I think it's that fundamental mismatch. It's like if you could step back 50 years ago and look at it, you could really predict that we were going to get into a terrible situation like we are today. Because there's no incentive to maintain the safety of the infrastructure. There's no financial incentive. Right. There's a moral incentive, ethical incentive, but no financial incentive. And this is a a private company. Exactly. So I just just want to ask one more question about this. Is there sort of an original sin here? Is there a a law that if it was changed would change the situation? Or where's the vulnerability? Or is it a much bigger systemic change that needs to happen? That's a really good and really tough question. I think it's a larger systemic change. There are some places that are looking into what they call performance-based rate making. So fairly simple things like, well... We're going to start with this 12% profit that you get to own. But if you cause a fire or if you hurt someone, then that's going to get reduced. And I think that's an encouraging model, but there's so many moving pieces. It's a difficult one to get right. Because at the end of the day, you know, the, the people who work for utilities, there's some really good people there, but they have a tough job. Their job isn't just to serve customers. It's, it's also they have a fiduciary duty to shareholders. So they need to always be looking out for the bottom line and how can they increase profits. And I think that is, is fundamentally the challenge. Okay, we will get back to this question about uh, how to fix some of these uh, structural problems. But I wanted to ask you in particular about Texas. Uh, We saw how bad things can get last week in Texas when they had an unseasonally cold storm and everybody lost power and water and it was just a disaster. I mean, beyond a disaster. I'm really curious how we, with our sort of vulnerabilities in our grid and our structure here, how do we compare to Texas? Are we vulnerable to the same sort of uh, problems uh, in the future. We've already had quite a few. We had uh, power shut off in this county for five days in 2019 for the PSPS. Uh, we also have had devastating and deadly fires right in our community as well. Santa Rosa was hit very hard, but at the same time in 2017, we lost about a dozen community members to the Redwood Complex fire uh, caused by, in part, by PG&E uh, lines that had not been maintained and a windstorm came and the rest is history and of course the campfire happened up the road from us which was probably the worst uh, most devastating in terms of loss of life and property uh, wildfire in california history Um, so we've already seen it ourselves but i just wonder could you compare texas's predicament to uh, what we were looking at here Sure. So to begin with, let's let's take the PSPS and the fires that we've suffered and, and put that off to the side okay. because those are have different causes. So California and Texas, what, what happened in common is we both experienced a really extreme weather event, right? In California, it was hotter than predicted, much, much hotter than predicted. And in Texas, uh, it was freezing cold at a time when it normally isn't. And so at a root level, I think 
neither physical grid and neither set of regulations was ready to deal with that extreme. Now, the, the, what happened in Texas was in ways more acute because of their reliance on natural gas for both heating and to generate electricity. When it got so cold and the pipes froze, the natural gas couldn't flow. So all of a sudden, you had no electricity and no heat. And in cases where you could ration the natural gas, of course, you're going to get it to people to heat their homes during this terrible blizzard. So that was kind of the, the physical baseline for Texas and a fundamental difference. So they were using natural gas to, to create electricity as well as to heat homes. Exactly. And we do both of those in California as well. But Texas relies much more heavily on natural gas. Now, to be fair, um, the wind production was not as high as they expected either. It was, I've heard, between 5 and 8% lower than what was expected. So their wind investments didn't come through and provide as much energy as they needed then either. But those are kind of the, the physical comparisons. What I think, working in, in the regulatory space, is what's really fascinating is the different set of rules. And so in Texas they are what's called a deregulated market. So instead of the state guaranteeing profits and telling utilities what to do and what they're not allowed to do, it's uh, it's the Wild West. Is it totally so, free-for-all there? Well, there's, there's federal oversight. There are rules. But in terms of your energy supplier, there's startups popping up every day. And they round up a group of customers and say, look, um, we'll offer you this great introductory price, sign here, and then people sign up and their bill goes down the next month and they're feeling good about it. Generally, those people just kind of forget who their provider is, stop shopping around, and then they're signed up for whatever their provider's costs are. And so the fundamental difference of being deregulated is I, I like to liken it to insurance. So in California, if you're supplying energy to a customer, you have to show insurance. You have to show to regulators, look, I have this energy, and in fact, I have more than I need. So you can count on the fact that our customers, my customers, are going to get that energy. In Texas, it doesn't work like that. In Texas, they just buy and sell energy in the spot market. And so for a new plant to be built in Texas, as an investor, I would look at this and say, okay, what are the chances there's going to be a terrible shortage and bills are going to go through the roof for two days of the year? Is that enough? And are those prices going to be high enough to pay back my investment in this wind plant or this gas plant? California has different protections in place so that customers aren't, um, they're not subjected to that because if you're providing energy in California, you have to show that you have this insurance. So that's why in Texas you have people that got, you know, $1,000 bills for a small apartment. Whereas in California, during the outages here, even though costs did go up in the wholesale market, our bills didn't go up. We still pay the same amount per kilowatt hour. So PG&E or, or Sonoma Clean Power, you'd be insured against something like that. That's right. And so there's all these rules in place where, you know, at Sonoma Clean Power and at PG&E, we have to show regulators contracts for as much energy as we're expected to have the peak hour of a year and another 15% to spare. And so then the regulator looks at that and says, okay, 
I don't have to worry about customers in Sonoma and Mendocino County because the, the providers there have got you covered. In Texas, no one is doing that check. So that means you can have a very low bill, you can have a very high bill, but you're just kind of out there on your own. Wow. Okay, so um, that's one thing. So that makes me feel a little bit better about being in California, that maybe we aren't going to skid out like Texas did. What else? So I said we'd put the the PSPS and the fires to the side. And the the reason is that the PSPS events, they have nothing to do with a lack of supply. What they have to do with is the wires are unsafe to operate. I mean, that's why some people in the industry quip that it's the protect shareholder power shutoff because the utility is making a strategic decision and saying, I'm afraid my system could cause a fire. I'm afraid my system could hurt someone and that I could be liable. So instead, I'm just going to shut everyone off. Right. We definitely had that feeling. The, the, we, although one thing that happened in 2019, was it 2019? Yes. When they left one little line on and that was what caused the Kincaid fire, which made me think, oh, my God, maybe this is so bad that they know like the calculation is they know it's going to cause fire so they're turning it off because they they just know that it's in a terrible state but that was just a guess from from seeing that in fact when they did leave a line on it did cause a catastrophic fire during the PSPS right and 2019 was the worst of both worlds right i mean oh. we, we were supposed to have either shutoffs or fires shutoffs as a temporary solution right. to fire when we get hit with both Exactly. So, and you're saying that's because of PG&E's business model, not because of any problem with the regulation? I think it's fundamentally the business model. I think it's also difficult for regulators to go out and inspect thousands and thousands of miles of, of wire through tough terrain. And I do think that climate change makes those events more damaging when they do happen. Yeah. Right. And so then looking toward the future, uh, we're, we're facing a, a huge change that needs to be made. So um, what are some of the thoughts about how to take us forward? I, I know that after the PSPS, there was a lot of talk about taking over PG&E. There was. And the thing is, this problem didn't happen overnight. It took decades to get to where we are. And so now if, say, the state took over PG&E, well, now they're going to be liable for these wires that haven't been maintained and haven't been taken care of and that there aren't good records of. So it's, a, it's an enormous liability. And the fact is, as citizens, we wind up footing the bill no matter what. I mean, in that scenario, maybe we'd pay higher taxes for the state to deal with liabilities and to repair the system. If it stays with PG&E, then we just pay more through our PG&E bills, which we're already doing today. So... It's um, an unfortunate reality that it's it's a huge, scary, expensive problem that's been created over decades. And I think it's going to take at least the better part of a decade to really fix it. This is Byline Mendocino. I'm Alicia Bales. And this is an interview with Neil Reardon, who's the Director of Policy Affairs for Sonoma Clean Power. We're talking about the power grids in Texas and California and how they compare in terms of their vulnerability to disasters. I think a lot of it comes down to what solutions and where and what do you prioritize. So, for example, I mean, 
part that's really heartbreaking. I think about if I lose power at my house, it's inconvenient. But there's a lot of people that need power as a medical necessity, breathing devices, etc. And so it's really for them a public health crisis. So I think you know that's that's clear is that that's the population that you start with is you keep people safe, and then you can look at specific municipal facilities, right? You want you want hospitals to be running, you want fire and police to be operating, things like that. So I think building out from sort of a core of what's who's most vulnerable in your population, and then what types of sites and and they're called critical facilities in regulatory parlance are the most necessary for everyone to be able to collectively function and get by, even if they don't have power at home. Well, considering that this grid has been in in the works, it's been being created over almost a century now, probably, I mean, maybe longer. Uh, it, is the grid as it exists, is it capable of the, being the most efficient model for serving and protecting those folks? Or do you ever imagine just scrapping it and starting over? I think it depends where. And so, for example, at one, one end of the extreme, imagine San Francisco, densely populated, all the wires are underground, there's no fires, there's no shutoffs. The grid is working just fine there. It's a good solution. Now picture somewhere deep, deep in the mountains of Mendocino at the end of an old distribution line going through hills and forests. And maybe the last few miles of that line are only serving three customers. I think that's an area where you say, wait a minute, should we just remove the line and eliminate the chance for fires in the miles leading up to those homes and just set up microgrids or small solar and storage or any kind of generation to serve those customers there? And that's something that that people, including PG&E, are starting to talk about. But you do run into that conflict of the distribution system just by existing is what's generating profits for shareholders. Well, we had several neighborhoods in Willits this year who were out of power for five days plus because of a snowstorm. So actually, maybe the Texas example is a little bit closer to home than we remembered. Um, and that's exactly who lost power for five, six days was people at the very end of the lines. So how would a, what would a microgrid look like in a rural area like ours? Well, a, a microgrid, I've learned, is anything smaller than the whole utility grid. So oh. a microgrid could just be you have solar on your roof and you have a storage system and you're able to provide your own energy if you're shut down. Um, on the larger side, a microgrid could be providing energy for a whole campus. Um, one of my favorite examples is submarines are sort of the ultimate microgrid, right? They're serving their own needs. They have their own generation. So, Or what about the Mars rovers? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Micro microgrids. <laughs> So I think there's there's options for the micro microgrids and just you know generation on individual specific homes maybe deep in rural areas and then I think there's also some really interesting options for shared facilities uh, maybe downtown there was a group um, and is still looking at a microgrid proposal in Fort Bragg to try and figure out okay if we had solar energy and we had um, energy storage in these areas, 
could we power the hospital, the police department, the fire department, etc. So just with their own power generation, it could be green energy, hopefully it would be, um, solar, wind. Uh, were, were they talking about um, some sort of bio? Yeah, yeah, biomass plant. Um, I don't believe so in that example, but they did have, a, they call it a thermal generator. So something that uses fossil fuels to create energy. Um, and that, I believe, already exists at the hospital. But having that isn't a bad thing. I mean, if you can use your solar energy and what you store up for two days, and then you need to fire up your thermal generator for the last day, well, you've done pretty well. So you've, you've eliminated two days of fossil fuel use for energy. Exactly. And you've kept the hospital lights on and kept people safe. Yes, we were definitely scrambling at the radio station for for the PSPS. It was no fun at all when you got to have power and you can figure out how to do it. Um, okay, so the other thing I wanted to ask you about was community choice aggregation. What is that and how does it play a role in, in, in the future of, uh, of the grid? Sure. So after the energy crisis of 2000 in California, the legislature said, okay, we need to think about how we're approaching this. And they took a few steps to provide other options. So they said, we don't think we can just trust the for-profit utilities as the only options for getting energy in the state. So they did a few things. They wrote laws to encourage the use of on-site solar to make it easy to put solar on your roof and power your own home. They also required some of these insurance products that I described. And they said, okay, we're going to require PG&E and anyone else who's providing electricity to prove that they have some to spare in case the unexpected happens. And the third thing they did, which has really become probably the most impactful over the last decade, is they said, we are going to allow local governments to decide if they would like to leave PG&E's energy service and choose their own energy supply. And it's interesting. They passed the law and not much happened for a few years. And then Marin Clean Energy was the first one to launch. And there were many hard-fought battles for Marin to be able to launch. But after they did, a few years later, uh, Sonoma Clean Power launched in 2014. Our CEO likes to say we were the second one on the dance floor. There's something to be said for that. And following that, in the years to come, we've seen community choice aggregators springing up through the majority of PG&E's territory. So now CCAs provide more energy to customers in Northern California than PG&E does while we all use the same wires as I described. But I think it provides a really powerful platform for local governments to decide what investments they want to make, what resources they want. Everything's public. Our finances are public. The public is welcome to come to board meetings. Uh, they're welcome to walk into our office. It's just a very different setup and is, um, you know, it provides a, that level of local control and oversight that I think a lot of people appreciate, so particularly you, in Northern California. Right, definitely. So it sounds like a good fit for our communities. Um, so you aren't nonprofits, you're actually public corporations. How does that work? <laughs> so we are a joint powers authority. So you're like a, a kind of a governmental agency a little bit. We're a, a nonprofit 
that was formed jointly by multiple government agencies. It sounds very bureaucratic when I describe yes. it like that. Yes, it does. Could you describe like how do Mendocino County residents get Sonoma Clean Power? Who's eligible for it and what are the different programs that you offer? Sure. So anyone is eligible. And the way it works is when elected representatives decide, they say, I'm going to move my county to this. And so it's then on individual customers to decide whether or not they want to participate. And the two um, options we offer for energy are called Clean Start and Evergreen. Clean Start is our kind of baseline level of supply, and it's about 90% greenhouse gas free, which is excellent. It's much, much better than the statewide average. What's the statewide average? About half that. Okay. What's fascinating about Evergreen is not only is it 100% renewable, but it's 100% generated within Sonoma and Mendocino counties. So a lot of times the way these tariffs work is, I mean, for example, PG&E was ordered by the state to offer a 100% renewable tariff to customers. What they do is, being a business, they look for the cheapest place in the state to develop renewable energy. So if someone in San Francisco signs up for the 100% renewable PG&E tariff, really what PG&E does is they develop a solar plant maybe outside of Bakersfield, the energy goes into the grid there, and then in, up in San Francisco, they say to the customer, okay, the energy that was generated during the day in Bakersfield, we're calling that the energy for your account, even though that when the sun sets in Bakersfield and in Sacramento, that customer is still using energy. They're drawing it from the grid. They're drawing it from natural gas. Evergreen is phenomenal because not only is the energy generated within our territory, it's also generated to match customers' load. And we're lucky here. You know, we have geothermal resources, and so those provide energy around the clock. We also have great solar, and so that provides energy in the middle of the day when people are running air conditioners, etc. And we even have good wind resources, where they call them the kind of shoulder hours in the morning and, and um, evenings. So what Evergreen does is it says, we're going to develop resources in our territory that provides energy for our customers just when they need it. And as far as I know, it's, it's the only product in the industry like that. Is, is um, renewable the same as carbon-free? It is not. There's slight differences. So, for example, a large hydropower facility is carbon-free. It doesn't generate emissions, right. but it's not considered renewable because there's a limited number of rivers and lakes and probably not wise to dam all of them up. Right. And those dams do have significant environmental impact on endangered species and other right. things. So, um, okay. So people can just sign up if they're on the grid, if they're not off grid, they can sign up for either of these and, and it's just another choice. That's right. And so to, to back up a little bit to your question. So, you know, prior to the launch of snow and clean power, there was only one choice if you wanted energy. And so everyone was signed up with PG&E because that was the option. When then the local governments and the county got together and they said, we want to come up with our own option, what they do is we send out notices to customers and say, we're going to launch and you're going to be part of this as part of Mendocino County. So if you're not interested, that's fine. Let us know. 
Otherwise, we're going to do this together, and then we're going to all start buying energy in bulk and get better prices for one another. So uh, a kind of funny wrinkle is that a lot of times I, I talk to neighbors and they're interested in Sonoma Clean Power, and then they're surprised and happy to find out that they already are customers because the local elected officials in Sonoma said, we want to go this way. But those customers would be taking service from what's called Clean Start, the 90% option. For those interested in Evergreen, it's give us a call, go on the website, and upgrade. Um, I pay about another $12 to $13 per month for Evergreen service, and I use a lot of energy because I have two electric vehicles. So it's not a huge amount more, and I can even take a drive outside of town and see some of the solar facilities that we've built through this program, which is pretty amazing. And Ukiah is on the Clean Start program, right, as a whole city. Like if you live in Ukiah, you're getting your energy from Sonoma Clean Power. Not Ukiah and not Healdsburg. The reason is that they already have municipal owned utilities. So when the legislature wrote this law in 2000, you know, they weren't upset with the publicly owned utilities. They were upset with the for-profit utilities and said, we want to break up the monopoly here and offer some other options. So Healdsburg and Ukiah are both municipal utilities. The difference is they also own the wires. Sonoma Clean Power is also a government entity and a nonprofit, but we don't own the wires. We rent use of PG&E's wires. Got it. So you don't have any customers in Ukiah or Healdsburg because nobody's signing on with you. No, nor did the legislature feel like there was a problem that needed to be solved in Ukiah or Healdsburg. Because they're just the municipality. They're there for service, not for profit, right? Exactly. And you really see that. I mean, statewide, looking at rates of public versus for-profit utilities, the municipal utilities are much cheaper. But anyone who's on the grid outside of Ukiah or Healdsburg is a potential customer. That's right. How many customers do you have? What's the percentage? Do you know? We talk about accounts, so we have about 228,000 accounts, or about 88% of eligible customers are taking service from us. Right, and you're saying they they have these uh, all over the state, so is that really cutting into PG&E's customer base? It's cutting into their customer base, but not their profits. Right. So PG&E still gets to earn profits on the, the wires and the distribution system. What it is doing, though, is it it is taking some of the influence and um, power, pardon me, from PG&E and giving it to local communities. I mean, you can't walk into a PG&E board meeting and tell the executives what you think about their investment plan. You know, you you can't unpack their financials. You can't get access to their leadership. Do you have elected board members so people can can vote for them? We do, yeah. So our board members are local elected officials um, who've already been um, voted for by their constituents. Right. And our local representative on your board is our supervisor from the 4th District, Dan Jurdy. So my next question then, or my last question, is how much of a leap is it to go from how we are now to even more energy independence where um, at some point you might own the the grid? (laughs) That's a big one. I so, mean, are we kind of, is that, what, is that the, what the future holds for us? 
I, I don't know about that. I think really everyone just needs to focus on the problem at hand, which is the grid, and to get it repaired and make it safe. And I don't think now is the time to imagine or quibble about who's going to own it or who's going to have play what role. I think it's just it's all hands on deck. This is an emergency, and so let's work together to fix it. And we don't want PG&E seeing an exit strategy for them. We want them to take care of the problem that they own now, right? Exactly. And and we're here to help and we're trying to collaborate with them and and making some progress there. Great. Anything that we missed that you think would help people understand this complicated issue more? Um, On the, the CCA ownership piece and sort of your role, Um, So, for example, you mentioned Supervisor Jurdy. I think a a great way to describe it is if you want to have some say into what Sonoma Clean Power should be doing, should we be offering um, more incentives for electric vehicle chargers? Should we be investing in more solar plants in Mendocino County? Well, you can either call or send an email or come to a board meeting, or you can go through your local elected officials and you can reach out to them and say, listen, this is what we want as the people of Willits or the people of Point Arena and then rely on, on those those board members of ours to represent those interests to us. So one critical thing that differentiates us is we offer what we call customer programs, right? And so that could be incentive to purchase an electric vehicle. Um, if you're stalling and installing an electric vehicle charger, we'll cover the majority of the costs. Another one which, we, which we've been investing in is helping customers get access to storage systems for their homes. So these programs are always changing a lot of it in response to what we hear from customers about what's important to them. But take a look at our website, take a look at our programs and see you know, what you can take advantage of. And if you have ideas that aren't there, well, we're all ears. Let us know. Great. Well, thank you. Thanks again. Really appreciate your time. Thanks for your time. Okay. Bye. Take care. Bye-bye. This is Alicia Bales. You're listening to Byline Mendocino here on KZYX and KZYZ. I come to you every other Friday alternating with Politics, a Love Story hosted by Bob Bashansky. That was Neil Reardon of Sonoma Clean Power. We were talking about Texas and the power grid in Texas and how it differs from the situation we face with the California power grid and uh, what role Sonoma Clean Power plays in, in all of that with PG&E. This has been a production of KZYX Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM, Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. You can check out our website at kzyx.org to find more content like this, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thanks for listening.